Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. You and I are discussing a contract and say, I'll get it to you in one week. It'll take me a week. If you and I, the same guys, are discussing the same contract, same parameters, but I say, I'll get it to you tomorrow, I'll likely hurry up and get it done tomorrow. More time, more consumption. Less time, more efficient, move faster. More money, we spend more. Less money, we become more innovative. So what we're doing with Profit First, by taking your Profit First, we're availing less money to the business. It constrains us, and then we become more innovative. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Do you struggle with delegation? How about profitability? What about organizational efficiency? Well, then I've got a guy I'd like for you to meet. Today's guest is Mike Michalowicz, a famed author who's written two books that changed the trajectory of my professional life. Together, we're going to sit down to tackle the key concepts from these books, as well as the lessons learned from Mike's own professional journey. So Josh, there's three key elements in the framework, and it's D for differentiate, A for attract, the final D is for direct. And what I found is that a business, a restaurant, any business, if we don't check off all three of these elements in our marketing, our marketing is crippled at best. And if we nail all three, it doesn't mean we're going to have extraordinary success, but we've got the fundamental elements there to have the optimal success. So quickly, what the first D differentiate stands for is that we must do something that is noticeable. The vast majority of marketing is invisible. The vast majority of anything is invisible because how the human mind works is we can't consume it all. Like right now, as we're recording, I have a pen in front of me and until the second, I haven't paid any attention to it. Because if I did, it could immerse me. You know, why is it black? Why is there black ink and not blue? And why is there black and blue? Why? It just goes on and on and on. So our minds are designed to pay attention to what's relevant now, you know, our conversation. And when it comes to marketing, if we do the standard marketing of everyone else, it is that unnoticeable just innocuous, irrelevant pen. So the first step to garnering attention is do something that disrupts the common noise. It stands out from that white noise and it's noticeable. But being noticeable for noticeable sake doesn't work either. Like I could have dressed in my Bozo the Clown costume. I may have one. And you know, for this interview, and you'd be like, you would surely notice, but it doesn't pass necessarily the next test, which is A for attract. Does it speak to your prospect's interest? Is it entertaining? educational? Does it address a pain point they have? Does it solve a problem they have? And you know, a clown costume, while it'll get noticed, you may be turned off by it or you think like I'm a threat, like because most clowns are murderers. So, you know. <laughs> so, so you may avoid it. So what I have to do is something that's different, breaks the common noise, but A is attractive, meaning it speaks to the interest and intrigue of my prospect. But those two elements aren't enough. It must also have a direct, meaning it must have a specific action for you to take to facilitate or further build a relationship. So a classic example of uh, marketing that differentiates and attracts but doesn't direct is Super Bowl ads. 
you'll see these new commercials. New is different, right? So we're like, oh, what's going to be the new commercial? It's attractive. You see Clydesdales walking around, snow coming down, Dalmatians. Like, oh, I want to immerse myself. But those commercials don't have a direct. It doesn't say like, scan this QR code for a free bud. So what happens is in those cases, they're trying to build brand awareness. Anheuser-Busch legitimately has a $1.6 billion marketing budget. But small businesses, we don't have that convenience. But sometimes we play into it, right? just build brand awareness. No, no, no. Build small micro conversions every single time. Get attention. It may be the only time you get that prospect's attention. Have a reason for them to engage with you. You're speaking their language. You're entertaining. You're engaging. You're of service to them in that marketing. And then tell them what to do next. But the key with the direct, that final D, is it needs to be specific and reasonable and safe. You can't say, hey, give me a million-dollar deposit or a thousand-dollar deposit, and they don't know who you are. But it's just as risky as saying, hey, thanks for visiting. Enjoy yourself. Give them a next step to take that they feel comfortable with. Give me your email, and I will start providing you with some benefit or something. But some exchange where there's a currency exchange, there's value being traded for true value, and now we have something that we can engage in further. So that's the DAD framework. Differentiate, attract, direct. If you can't check of all three in your marketing, the marketing is crippled. And I think we can unpack even further because like with differentiation, one of the things that you advocate for, and I think it's true, is that like better is bullshit, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just before this, I did a little webinar. I'm, I'm actually at my home office and I got invited to this little webinar, which is not the typical way I like to present, but it just happened. And I started off by saying, who here is better than the competition? And every hand went up in that webinar. So that's fantastic. And I truly believe it to be true that maybe not in all capacities we're better than our competition, but some of us respond faster, others care more. And then I said, you have a damned responsibility to be noticed because if you're better, if you're the better solution for your customers, you have to get noticed. And the irony is better doesn't get noticed. Better is expected, but right. different garners attention. Just as an example, I've in my own little town here, I'm from New Jersey. There's this one street called Main Street. Surprise, surprise. And on Main <laughs> Street, there are three gyms back to back each other. And when I talked with the owners, every single one said, yeah, I'm better than the other two. They all said that. And you know what? I believe in their certain capacities, they all were, but all of them marketed the same way. So for the prospect walking by, it's like, oh, there's another before and after picture. Schlubby person becomes all jacked up and ripped. And they were ignorable. We have to break that pattern of marking the same because then we're perceived as the same. I also think that when we unpack the ability to attract, I would argue that most people are using social media and media yeah. in the wrong way, right? Like they're using it to convert as opposed to working first to get that attention and then yeah. direct them towards a specific call to action, right? Yeah. You know, when I look at social media, there's a reason they have those clickbait things because they kind of work on the different like you're scrolling by and you see some guy with this massive beard and it says home insurance or something. It's like, what? It, it jogs <laughs> your mind. Now, different garners attention, but immediately must be an attractor factor. The person that sees it then has to say, oh, this is for me. So that clickbait gets our attention, but does it keep us enraptured? Our job is to do that, is first to break the common noise. And I'll tell you a real simple way to do it, Josh, is look at what your competition's doing, examine what the best practice is, and that's the one thing not to do. Okay. If everyone's doing the social media, the only way you may win is on a volume game, and that's precarious. And in fact, I'd argue one of the most common lies in marketing, if it ain't working, double down on it. So you see folks are saying, I'm spending $1,000 a month in Facebook ads, and it's not working. I got to spend two or five, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. What I suggest is, why don't we take that $1,000 or $2,000 off the table from Facebook and just try 
mailing to our prospects a candlestick in a envelope and saying, your birthday is coming up. We're ready to celebrate it with you. Happy birthday. That alone is likely inconsistent with what your competition is doing. You already from square one have a better odds or better chance of conversion, meaning getting customers. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And then it really comes down to the call to action. I went to a restaurant's website recently and the pop-up was to sign up to contribute to their crowdfunding for their next location. Nope. And all I could think was, I mean, shit, they might not have even eaten your food yet, you know? And so for so many of us, I think that when you look at having that direct call to action, you really only get one opportunity and one call to action. So Mm -hmm. we have to have in our minds, like, what is that one thing we need everyone to do, right? Yeah. Is it safe? Is it reasonable? Otherwise, you're not going to abandon. So someone sees, you know, donate to my cause, make me richer is what it should say. Make me richer, give me money. You may be losing out and people aren't going to return again. I'm not saying they're so dissuaded that they're like, oh, you're horrible. I'm never visiting again. Their mind is elsewhere. They see no value to themselves. And people are so transient in these different platforms. There's a low potential they're going to come back. So what we need to do is do something that's of value to them. I think the other risk too is this concept of remarketing. There's some value there, but it's basically a technique of branding. For example, my daughter and I were looking at getting our new car, and this is about a few months ago. And one of the things I did as a dad is like, I'm going to look at all the used cars that are out there that have a good reputation. Ends up the Toyota Corolla has a good reputation. So I checked out the Toyota Corolla, and sure freaking enough, every effing day, I get these ads for the Toyota Corolla. It is so annoying. I feel so invaded upon. I'm like, the one car we're not effing buying is the effing Toyota (laughs) effing Corolla. And we didn't. We got a Mazda. So be careful of that, that the goal is not to assault our prospects. The goal is to A, garner attention, to value their attention by offering something attractive and then giving them something safe to do that is of value to them. The only experience someone will have with your restaurant until they go to your restaurant is your marketing. So it better be consistent with the experience you want them to have going forward. Great advice. I want to dig into your book, Clockwork. I found this book to be absolutely revolutionary, especially in an industry where delegation is just not commonplace. No, but I want to say it is, right? Yeah, right. Nature of the beast. I want to talk about one specific thing that for me was absolutely transformative. And it was the understanding behind the queen bee role. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A massive, massive game changer. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, I love that. That served you. In fact, I'm re-releasing the book in a revised and expanded edition and focused in on improving the QBR, Queen Bee Roll, the concept so it's so digestible and deployable. The essence is that. So what I found, there's a concept called biomimicry. If you look at nature, she's pretty wickedly smart. She's figured out things over a billion years. Let's take her ideas and translate them to us. Like She's done this the testing for us. Well, one of the concepts I was looking at is what makes an efficient organization. And I found that beehives are extraordinarily efficient. The demonstrative is you see a bee flying around your window on day one, day two, there's this massive nest. Like how do they organize so effectively? And what it is, is that all the bees are programmed or however you want to define it, trained to protect the primary, most critical function, the heart of that organization or that business. And what it is for bees is the production of eggs. So the bees hive's mission is make more bees. Like that's their number one mission is the survivability of the species. And therefore, egg production is priority number one. Now, they can do other things too, which are all adding to the survivability, collect pollen, defend the hive, sting something or someone when they're invading. But all that stuff is secondary to producing eggs. 
if they neglect to sting something walking by, the hive may continue on. If they don't get pollen, some of the bees could pass away, but if there's reserved honey, they can consume that. But if eggs aren't being produced, bees die pretty quickly. There's turnover in that business. They live like four <laughs> weeks to six weeks. It depends on the species. But if they're not producing eggs, everything's done. So every bee knows egg production matters most. Now, not every bee is doing it. In the beehive, it's actually just one bee called the queen bee who serves that role. Everyone else is making sure that role is moving along. So their job is, if it's not working, support it. Now, the analogy uses a little bit of context when people say, oh, you mean in my organization there's one person who's the most important? No, there's one role. What is your egg production? And as long as that's happening and every other bee knows to protect that and ensure it's happening, the heart of your organization is protective and it will flourish. If you ignore it, it's compromised. The best way to explain this is through an example of, I use FedEx because FedEx is such a world-recognized brand. FedEx's promise, their survivability, if you will, is to deliver your packages on time. If it absolutely positively, whatever needs to be delivered overnight, FedEx will do it. Well, to ensure that happens, once you know what your promise is, and this is how you, the exercise is, what do you want to be known for among your customers? Not everything, but what's the one thing? We want to be known for delivering packages on time. We want to be known for designing the coolest websites. We want to be known as the restaurant where you're going to have the most fun of your life. Whatever that big promise is. I know you do other things. You serve good food and so forth. But what's the number one thing? Once you know it, you ask, of all the activities we do, what activity most supports that? So for FedEx, FedEx has uh, shipping locations where you can drop packages off. They have printing facilities. Right? They, don't, they bought Kinko's. But of all those things, the number one thing that most assures packages are delivered on time is logistics, meaning the movement of packages and the tracking of it. If Could you imagine if FedEx tomorrow says, you know, screw logistics, like that's overrated. Let's double down on customer service. I bet you within one week, the headlines of the newspaper say, FedEx doesn't know where a single freaking package is, but they are super friendly about it. FedEx would be out of business. They don't know where the packages are, but reverse it. And say FedEx says, screw customer service, we're doubling down on our Queen B role of logistics. The headline one week from now says, FedEx, I'm not answering phones, but every package delivered on time. In the first scenario where they give up on their Queen B role, the mighty $1 billion plus organization is at the brink of collapse because they've ignored the heart of the organization. The second scenario, they dropped customer service. They're definitely compromised, but the organization is still delivering on its core promise. Packages are delivered. They won't go out of business. Our small businesses, we need to pinpoint what do we want to be known for, our big promise, and of all the things we do, most makes that big promise reality. That activity is your queen bee role. Never, ever, ever compromise that. I know that fear. The fear of losing everything or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. 
in my own business, I was able to extrapolate out that into so many different facets. Like yeah. the exercise is so useful because ultimately you figure out what the true drivers of your business yes. are. An example would be like in the restaurant industry, you want to get a lot of press, right? So mm-hmm. how do you get press? You convince editors and writers to write about you. How do they find out about you? You invite them into the restaurant. So your queen bee role, if you want to get more press, is how many dinners can you book with members of the media? Yeah, it's right. So what's the objective and then the method to get there? So objective is more press. Method is wow the media. And then it becomes very clear. But the mistake is, I think most businesses say, we need more media attention. And they're like, okay. And that's it. It's like, well, right. how are we going to do it? It's like, well, every everything. The response is everything. We're going to do everything. We're going to wow our customers. They're going to talk about us. We're going to have a little trade booth at the local fair. And all of these things collectively will do it. And that's not the case. There's always a singular function. The, the definition of the word most is there can only ever be one most. There can only ever be one thing that most elevates our objectives. So start the objective, nail the one most. Other things are important. I'm not saying disregard those, but there's only one thing that's most important. I want to talk about profit first. I read the book, lived by the book, loved the book. But having said that, this is more than a book. It's a movement around Mm. one of the most common sense concepts, which turned out to be revolutionary. And I want to start high level. Like, why do you think for entrepreneurs, paying ourselves is so low on the list of priorities when starting our own businesses? I know it's crazy because here's the irony. The reason most entrepreneurs go into business is for financial freedom and personal freedom. I want to do what I want to do. It's personal freedom. I don't want to worry about bills, financial freedom. And yet, ironically, neither of those things happen for most people. Well, the financial freedom, I think a couple of the reasons why it doesn't work is, first of all, we're told that profit comes last. It is in our vernacular. We call it the bottom line, the year end. All things mean don't worry about it now. Because when something's last, it means it can wait. It's the manana syndrome. I think the second component is there's a belief, and it's wrong, that takes money to make money. Therefore, every dollar that comes in is every dollar that needs to go back into the business. But here's the reality. Sales in an organization, the money we make, is actually stress for an organization. The more you sell, the more responsibility you have. The more customers you have coming to your restaurant, the more you must serve. It's necessary to generate income, but we have to realize that the more we do, the more burden it puts on our business. So maybe there's a balance there. The profitability translates to sustainability. If no profit, your business is out of business. So most restaurants I know, every dollar they make today goes out the window tomorrow and there's panic to get people in. So what I teach in Prop First is to flip the formula. Sales are necessary because it's the creation of cash, but then next extract the sustainability. So take your profit first. It's the pay yourself first principle applied to business. Then what's left over tells you what you have to operate your business. Now here's the magic. There's a behavioral principle called Parkinson's law. Theorist from the 1950s, studying human behavior. And what he noticed was fascinating. The more a resource is available, the more we consume it. And the less resources available, the less we consume and the more innovative we become. If I'm given one week, you and I are discussing a contract and say, I'll get it to you in one week. It'll take me a week. If you and I, the same guys, are discussing the same contract, same parameters, but I say, I'll get it to you tomorrow, I'll likely hurry up and get it done tomorrow. Yeah. More time, more consumption. Less time, more efficient, move faster. More money, we spend more less money, we become more innovative. So what we're doing with Profit First, by taking your Profit First, we're availing less money to the business. It constrains us, and then we become more innovative. Oh, you know, Maybe we shouldn't just spend that money on the new uniforms or whatever. Maybe there's another way of addressing this. Maybe I don't need that new technology, that new equipment for the kitchen. We start thinking more innovatively. And by taking your Profit First, 
brings about stability. Stability brings about sanity. We're not worried and stressed. We start thinking about our business much more methodically. And actually, what I see is these businesses actually grow much faster in competition because they're out of the worry state and are moved to the strategic state. Something that I think is super interesting is you don't just write these books and release them out into the wild. You also coach on them. You have teams that are dedicated to helping people implement these things. And so because of that, you have a lot of practical, real world advice because you've helped so many people do this. And in the restaurant industry, everybody's listening and going, man, I net out 6% a year, right? That's the average for a full service restaurant. Can you offer examples and real life experiences of how low margin businesses have executed profit first? Oh, for sure. So yeah, we have over 600,000 implementations of Prop First globally. And what we did, and when I say we, it's not just me. We know I have a team. We have Profit First professionals, people who coach specifically. Actually, comes to mind Casey Anton, one of our mastery level members. We have about 600 people that are coaching on this. She specializes in restaurants. She owned a restaurant before. And what she found and what she's taught our restaurants and other traditionally low margin industries is First, dictate the margin you want, and then what will reveal is how to get there. Reverse engineer it. So I don't want 6%. I want a 20%. If I make a million dollars of return, I want a $200,000 check, not a 60000 but a $200,000 check waiting for me at the end of the year. She starts there. Then we say, okay, well, with that, it reduces my operating expenses. I don't have as much money to spend. What do I need to do? Or I need to bring in more high-spending customers. So literally what she did with one of the restaurants sharing that candlestick trick, what she knows is certain customers spend a premium. They bring all their friends, they get big tables, they buy all the booze, they're buying dessert, like these high margin things. She said, well, why don't we celebrate their birthdays? So she started mailing out those envelopes with the candle in it saying, your birthday's coming, a free meal on us. No like, you know, 10% off, no like one meal, two She goes, a free meal on us. Well, who wants to celebrate their birthday? No one comes by themselves. So people are coming and like, this is amazing. Ultimately, she found that in the summer, candles don't do so well. So she changed it to (laughs) balloons. So any time of the year. The funny thing was her partners said, that's gimmicky. It's cheesy. What we're going to do is we're going to frequent other bars and restaurants and try to recoup customers. We're going to razzmatazz. And that wasn't working. So she found a really simple solution that drove new business. And she brought these high profile customers. There's another, just on the mindset of restaurants, Another restaurant I worked with, and I encourage all restaurants to do this, evaluate who your best customers are. This one restaurant said, well, during the lunch session, we get the lawyers in, they're doing business deals. They want to wow their customer. They're buying the high-end stuff. By afternoon, early evening, we're getting the young families in. Kids are throwing crap all over the place, destroying the place. And it's loud and it's turning off our professional market. So if I got to choose between those two, and there were some other customers coming in, but those two, it's the professional lawyers coming in. So what we did is said, okay, let's cater to them. Well, the first thing that was interesting about these lawyers is they don't want cell access. They don't want people next to them on the phone. They want quiet, subdued environments. They put cell jammers in the restaurant. And at the entrance, they said, no cell phones permitted in this restaurant. The lawyers loved it. The families hated it because my kiddo can't play the video games. So by catering to one community, they curtailed or dissuaded another. And the premier customers paying a premium started to come more and more and more. And the ones who were not benefiting came less and less. Now, they did other things like that, but cater to your best customer is one way to increase those margins. 
I want to end the conversation by talking about you and your own personal path to discovering your audience, because I think that so many of us are out there trying to breed demand within a group that probably isn't our target audience. And just because you think you know who it is, or in your case, you think it's you. Right. <laughs> yeah. You did your research, brother. So, yeah. So, you know, Cocky Mike comes out and says, I'm going to write books. I'm Cocky Mike. And I think I'm Mr. Know It All. And clearly, the community that's going to want to consume my books are former me's. And I started my first business right out of college. I'm a white guy. So, I'm like, oh, white guys out, coming out of college, starting a business, that's who needs me. So, I start pumping into that market my books. I'm speaking at all these different college events and so forth. At the end of the event, a room of 50, one person buys the book. So I'm like, oh, what I did then is I doubled down on my wrong belief. I said, well, I'm not speaking enthusiastically enough. I'm not speaking frequently enough. And now I start seeing, I call it a false positive. Now two people are buying the book in the background. I'm like, clearly I need to be even more Anthony Robbins, but it was never getting true traction. Now behind the scenes, which I was ignoring initially was I was starting to get emails and calls from moms of these college students. And I ignored it first because that's not my avatar. The key lesson here that I had to learn the hard way was listen to naturally is coming to you. Bird in hand is worth more than two in the bush. It's worth the entire bush. Well, finally, I started responding to these moms and said, hey, why are you interested in my books? And I had one book at the time, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And I remember this one mom saying, my son came home from college. He, he, I guess, purchased your book. He left it here. That was another indicator they weren't consuming. She goes, I saw this (laughs) wacky title. I thought I'd read it. And she goes, when I read it, I was like, holy crap, this is for me. What she further explained as I was investigating, she said, I'm sorry, my first business ever. My husband is a verbal supporter, but an emotional detractor. I mean, he's saying, go for it. You're destroying us. And (laughs) I need support. And here's the first time I have a male expert who's not pandering to a female audience. I heard that a few times. It's like, oh my gosh, I am wrong. It's not these white kids. It's women moms who are re-entering the workforce as a solopreneur. I started to speak to those events. I started to hang out that community. And that's when my traction started to take off. And uh, subsequently, what I found is when you cater to the true market, the one that needs you and wants you, and, and you listen for them, if you cater to them, they may just so choose to carry you on their shoulders to the broader market. And that's what happened for me. Well, and I also think that when it turns out that your audience is not you, it makes it harder to market to them. And in your case, you did a ton of testing, right? So once you figured out who your avatar was, there was just nonstop A and B testing, the best way to price things, the best way to present things. For sure. I tested like a picture of my, on the website, I was holding a book with my wedding ring and my web designer says, oh, if you're speaking to a female audience, we can scrub out that wedding ring because you'll be more appealing. Well, you know what? That's not true. What I found out is that a wedding ring is actually a confidence factor. Like the female consumer was like, oh, this guy's not a total perv. So it was better to have a ring. But I only discovered that through testing and engaging my audience. Once we know who our audience is, or at least have a good sense for it, inquire, inquire, inquire to really learn that market. And by default, I learned a way to present myself to a market I could serve where my contemporaries had no clue how to do it. And that was my traction and it took off. Well, and then moving past customer acquisition, you've also had like a really solid nurture strategy around referrals, creating raving fans. Yeah. Can you talk about that as well? Yeah, yeah. So what I did inherent to my books is when people would read a book, I'd invite them to email me and then engage with them. I remember someone saying, oh, I'm a big fan of, say, an author's name. I was like, oh, what if I said I was a big fan of the fan themselves? What if I flipped it? 
So I did multiple systems. The email was a big one, inviting people to email me. I continue that today. I probably receive 100 emails a day just from a reader that's read one of my books saying, I'm doing this and I'm engaging with them. And that's been a game changer for me. This is an industry podcast, and I know you're incredibly familiar with the restaurant industry. I'm wondering, do you have any advice or words of encouragement for the folks that are listening? I do. You are a big effing deal. And I think people are losing sight of that. Like we have gone down this path of the generic mega providers, but it's the small business experience that no one can replicate. It isn't packaged. It isn't replicated. It's unique. It's experiential. And we are thirsting for it, particularly in this post- COVID or active COVID environment, I don't even know what it is. We need the tactile, the human experience again. And I just want to inspire you that that this responsibility to grow a profitable business, a sustainable business is more than just about you. It's about us. We need your success. So double down. We need you. That's Mike Michalowicz. For more on his books and programs, visit MikeMichalowicz.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.